And now, Father, as we come to your word, what a blessing it is. Let us not take this lightly. Let us not take this for granted, O Father, that we can go to your word and read what you would say to us specifically. So we pray, Lord, that this time would be a time that you are glorified and also a time, Father, that that we are edified, that we are strengthened, that we are encouraged, that we are built up in our faith in order that Christ would be more glorified in our lives, in order that we would be conformed more fully to his image. So by your Holy Spirit working in us, give us understanding and give us Give us a proper perspective of who we are in light of who you are. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Psalm 8. On the first Sunday of every month, we study a psalm. Uh, Last week, Jordan preached, and he wanted to preach a psalm, and it was fantastic. I don't think I could have done a better job. But we're going to be in Psalm 8 today. And part of the reason I chose this, uh, you'll notice that last month I preached Psalm 6, and this month I I skipped Psalm 7 and went to Psalm 8, and that's because next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and uh, this psalm actually has a very close connection to, uh, to Palm Sunday. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 8 today. And out of curiosity, as I was preparing this message, I decided to Google Bible and self-esteem just to see what I would come up with. And at first, what came up, because in Google, you know, they know your search history and everything, so all these great articles started showing up from ministries that I'm, I'm very familiar with. So I thought, okay, well, let me, let me go into private mode. Uh, so I went into incognito mode and, and did the same search, and it was crazy what came up. I, I, what I found was pretty much exactly what I had expected to find. I, I saw headlines like, uh, 10 Bible verses for building your self-esteem, or 18 plus Bible Bible verses for your self-confidence and worth. These are the types of results that came up all over the place, pages of them, uh, because Google didn't know who I was at that point. I was in incognito mode. But you know, psychology would have us believe that having a high sense of self-esteem is a person's top priority in life. And so the psychology community gives us books and they give us blogs and they give us journals that are all intended to serve as a means to this end. We want to feel good. We want to feel good about ourselves. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is that sin, our sin nature, our fallen nature, inclines us to love and to worship ourselves not too little, but too much. To to worship the creation rather than the creator. And so while the culture around us is continually seeking ways to promote self-esteem, to build self-esteem, to elevate the self, the Bible instructs us to be the opposite, to be humble, to be lowly. And so it's important that we know how to find the balance between uh, self-loathing or just feeling really miserable about ourselves and thinking too highly of ourselves, which is far more of a problem and far more common. 
Uh, The psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And modern psychology would scream in rebellion against a verse like this. Hey, you can't say that to somebody. You can't say to somebody there's no good within them. But who are they to question or to challenge the God who breathed those words out and who breathed them out for his glory and for our good, for our instruction, for our reproof, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. Maybe the biggest problem with this modern obsession, or you might even call it idolization of self-esteem, is that it keeps our gaze, it keeps our attention fixed on ourselves rather than on our sovereign God. In Calvin's classic work, The Institutes, he starts off chapter 1 by noting that we can't know or understand ourselves truly until we know and understand God. He wrote this. He wrote, quote, No man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts toward the God in whom he lives and moves. End quote. So no man can understand himself until he understands God, is what Calvin was saying. And that's actually the point of this psalm. The point of this psalm is that having a right perspective of ourselves begins with having a right perspective of God. Having a right perspective of ourselves begins with having a right perspective of God. That is, a proper and balanced self-esteem and sense of self-worth are found not by looking first and foremost to ourselves, but in considering the greatness of and the glory, and the majesty of God, and what he has done for us, and what he has given to us. Psalm 8 is easily one of my favorite psalms. Uh, Psalms 3 and 7 are pretty dark. Uh, They're pretty dreary. They they deal with facing trouble. They deal with facing despair. They deal with things like facing false accusations, being persecuted, being chased wrongly. And they instruct us and they encourage us to find our greatest hope and our greatest comfort and our refuge in God. Those are all fantastic things. We need those things because we all go through those types of times. We all go through difficult seasons in which we reach a point of despair, just like David did as he was writing Psalms 3-7. to But those are some dark, dark psalms. They're psalms that were written as David reached the deepest points, the, most, the, the darkest points of his life. But if you can picture those psalms as similar to being trapped and lost in some underwater caves in which the psalmist is, is running out of air, time is, is running short, Psalm 8 is like the psalmist coming to the surface and taking in just an enormous gasp of fresh, clean, revitalizing air. Now, this is possibly the first psalm that David wrote, uh, and we can't be sure about that because there's not a timeline given to it or anything. Uh, And while we can't be sure, there is an undeniable sense that he wrote this as he was looking up at the night sky, uh, probably during his years as a shepherd, which he did as a young man. I mean, there was no, uh, it wasn't similar to today where almost everywhere you go, there's some degree of light pollution that, that, hung in the, that hangs in the sky. It wasn't like that. There was no light pollution anywhere in the sky. And it's entirely conceivable that David wrote this psalm as he gazed 
uh, up at the stars and as he considered what he saw. Perhaps, uh, I'd say more likely than not likely, perhaps at a, at a pretty young age. But one notable commentator said this of this psalm, and this is one of the reasons I think I, I love this psalm so much. He says, quote, This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done, and relating us for, and our world to him, all with, the mag- all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe, end quote. He says that's what, that's what every hymn should be. And so as we start with verses 1 and 2, we see David um, expressing the inexpressible majesty of God. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. It starts by saying, For the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the vengeful, revengeful cease. So the psalm starts out by once again reminding us that this is a song. It's for the choir director. This is straight out of God's hymnal. And this psalm has been sung and celebrated by his people for literally thousands and thousands of years. And as Jordan pointed out last week as he preached Psalm 130, um, the psalm was also uh, probably sung by Jesus at some point during his earthly ministry. But David begins the psalm with an expression of, of wonder an expression of awe and amazement. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the first time, by the way, that one of the Psalms uses the first person plural. David doesn't say, my Lord. He doesn't say, your Lord. He says, our Lord. And so we have to see that this is an invitation for the people of God to join him in declaring the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. You'll notice as you look at your Bibles that the first use of the word Lord is in all capital letters while the second is not. And if you remember, that's because the first one, the one that's in all capital letters, uh, is the name of God. It's Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, It's a reminder that God is a covenant-keeping God. That's his covenant name. But it's also a reminder that he is self-existent, that he is a self-sustaining God. Isaiah uh, 42.8, God says this. He says, I am the Lord. Again, all capital letters. I am the Lord. That is my name, he says. And of course, you know that when Moses first encountered God, Moses said, to God. Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And then we see in the next verse, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yahweh, or Jehovah, is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He created time. He created space and matter, which means that he is not those things. 
nor is he bound by those things. No, he exists outside of them. He exists independently of time, space, and matter. He is above them. He is beyond them. He is greater than them. These are all implications simply of his name. But the second use of the word Lord has only the first letter capitalized. In Hebrew, it's, it's a different word. It's Adonai instead of Yahweh. It's Adonai, which refers to a ruler or to a king or to a master. So putting it all together, David is basically saying, O Yahweh, our covenant-keeping, eternally existing king and master, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And by the way, he's not asking a question. He's not asking, how majestic is your name? He's saying, God's name is so majestic that it cannot be fully or adequately expressed with human lips or with anything. And yet, that's how this psalm starts, with an expression of God's greatness, His his glory, His majesty. That's what this psalm is really about. And the reason, this is an easy way to figure out what this psalm's about. The last verse is the same as the first verse. There's repetition there, which tells us that that's what this whole unit is all about. So where do we see the majesty and the glory of God's name expressed? Everywhere. Everywhere. It's literally everywhere. David starts with the earth. God's name is majestic in all the earth. If you were to climb the highest mountain, the majesty of God's name is there. If you were to descend to the depths of the lowest seas where even the rays of the sun can't reach, where humanity can't even uh, discover yet, we don't have the technology or the ability to even get there yet, the glory of God is there. It's in the driest desert just as much as it's in the wettest rainforest. It's unmistakably present in the darkest nights and in the brightest day. His name is majestic, not in part of the earth, not in some of the earth, not in most of the earth, in all the earth. In all the earth. There isn't a single molecule in existence that does not somehow reflect the majesty of God's holy name. But it's not only contained in all the earth. The earth, in fact, cannot even begin to contain the majesty and the glory of God's name. David quickly moves on to the highest place imaginable. God's glory can not only be seen in all the earth, David says, he says, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. It means it's the highest place imaginable. What's David... What does David seem to be looking at while he writes this psalm? The sky. It seems he's probably looking at the heavens, the night sky. But as vast and as colossal as the heavens above are, that even cannot begin to contain the splendor and the glory and the majesty of God's name. God has displayed his splendor above the heavens. Not not just in the heavens, he's displayed it above the heavens. And that reminds us of what King Solomon said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. He said, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So even though all of creation, the heavens, the earth, every 
molecule within creation all contains and displays God's glory. Even everything that we can see, everything that we can discover cannot possibly be sufficient to display fully God's glory. All the creation can do is reveal just a partial glimpse of the majesty of God because creation is finite and God is infinite. If God has set his splendor and his glory above the highest heavens, it is certain that it cannot be contained or adequately expressed below the heavens. Every square centimeter of the universe puts God's glory on display. It cannot be missed. It is absolutely everywhere. And yet, while the majesty of his glory cannot be fully expressed, this is the very privilege to which God's people are called. David writes in verse 2, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. If you think about what he's saying here, this is truly, truly incredible. Not only are all the stars in heaven the greatest things imaginable, displaying the glory of God, but the glory and the greatness of God is seen even in the smallest and the lowliest and the most unexpected of places from the mouths of infants and small children. See, when God uses weak, unlearned, unnoble people to do and say great and mighty things, God's glory shines the most brightly because it demonstrates God's power in our weakness. Consider what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said in chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And you remember what God said in response to Paul when Paul complained three times about this thorn that he had in his side, whatever that may have been, God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The message that the gospel gives us is that we have nothing to boast of in ourselves. And so we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 16 too, you, you are my Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. But God uses broken vessels. God uses the mouths of children even to reveal the majesty and the glory of his name because everyone recognizes that those types of people, that broken vessels can't possibly be given credit for the power that works within them. And so the glory doesn't go to the person, to the vessel. The glory goes to God. In this verse that we're looking at, Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 8, verse 2, it actually gets quoted by Jesus at one point. This is the connection to Palm Sunday. After his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, there was a time when Jesus was healing people 
who came to him in the temple area. And the young children who had seen and, and celebrated Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with everybody else that was celebrating his entry into Jerusalem, but had gone away, had, had stopped celebrating, the children continued doing what everybody else had ceased from doing. They continued rejoicing and celebrating Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We read this in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. These Pharisees and scribes couldn't stand to see these children recognizing Jesus as the son of David who was promised. And Jesus replied to them by quoting Psalm 8. He says, you know, it, the, the text says, and he said, and said to him, uh, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, out of, the mouth, uh, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? That's from, Psalm, uh, that's from Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 to 16. The religious leaders were just going out of their minds at this point because we see that Jesus not only received and was pleased by the praises of these children, but in doing so, in, in accepting this praise, and in what he says to them in quoting this psalm, he identifies himself as God. Right? The praises from the lips of children were for God. And Jesus says, yes, these praises are for me. And so God used the praises from these weak, feeble, uneducated, unnoble mouths of children to shame the powerful and educated and noble leaders. Their unbelief, the, the unbelief of these scribes and, and Pharisees was silenced by the weakest and lowliest members of society. And God was greatly glorified in that. And so with all that established, we, we must understand how contrary this is to the way that the world thinks and the way that the world operates. We love prestige, we love degrees, we love education, and these things aren't necessarily bad. We love somebody who's qualified for a job, of course. Those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. But what we see here is that even a child who knows and believes and speaks the truth of the gospel, has more power and has more wisdom than an atheist adult with 10 doctorate degrees from the most highly esteemed universities in the world. See, when we consider the greatness of God and the vastness of creation, it gives us a certain perspective of who God is and what he's capable of. I mean, among other things, what it should do when you have this perspective is it knocks the overinflated self-esteem right off its pedestal. Having a right perspective of ourselves starts with having a right perspective of God. And the, rest, and, and, and the majority of this psalm is going to deal with, with mankind. But it starts and it ends with understanding something about God. So now we move into the part of the text where he, he starts considering man's place in what God has created. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. He writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, 
What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? What he's saying is that when somebody considers the greatness of God's glory, of who God is, as reflected in the greatest and the smallest things and everything in between in all of creation, it's humbling. It's humbling. What is man that you would consider him? That you would be mindful of him? That you would even care about him, much less love him? When you consider the vastness of what God has done, when you consider the inexpressible greatness of his glory, when you realize that God is greater than we can possibly even come close to imagining, it does something to your self-esteem. I mean, if we think that the heavens are great in size, we have to understand that God is bigger, that God is greater, that God is more glorious than the things that he has made. Than, than anything in, in his creation. And when we consider how big and how great and how glorious God is, we realize that we are very, very puny. That we are very insignificant. That we are extremely small in comparison. And all of this should work to make a person humble before the Lord. See, the higher our view of God is, the lower our view of ourselves must be. There, there's a correspondence between these two things, a correlation between these two things. And so the real danger involved in turning something like self-esteem into an idol is that while it elevates the individual, it lowers our view of God because these two things correlate it's like a seesaw. When one side goes up, the other must go down. When one side goes down, the other must go up. So if we have a high view of self, what happens to our view of God? It goes down. Our view of God decreases. But if we have a high view of God, what happens to our view of ourselves? It goes down. And that is a good thing. And that's not to say, by the way, that we should be self-loathing, absolutely not. That's taking it too far and, and hating what God has made in his own image. No, there's a healthy balance that we can find between self-exaltation and self-loathing. Now, you might think uh, that, that self-loathing is the opposite of being prideful, and, and maybe in one sense that's true, but consider the, the fact that that self-loathing can itself be an expression of pride because it does not fix our ultimate problem. It does not take our attention, it does not take our gaze off of ourselves and set it upon God. It keeps our gaze, our attention on ourselves. It still involves thinking too much about ourselves. See, it's a problem both to think too highly of ourselves, it's also a problem to think too often of ourselves. Both are manifestations of pride. So we have to understand this, friends. A proper and balanced self-esteem and sense of self-worth are found not by keeping our attention, our gaze set upon ourselves, but in considering something outside of ourselves and greater than ourselves, but in considering the greatness and the glory and the goodness and the majesty of God and what he has given us, and what he has done for us. 
You don't find a sense, a healthy sense of self-esteem by looking at yourself. You don't find a healthy dose of self-esteem by comparing yourself to others. You don't find a healthy dose of self-esteem by seeking the praise of man, which is, by the way, more fragile than life itself. You find a healthy sense of self-esteem by considering the greatness and the vastness of God and the puniness of man and the fact that this great, glorious, infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, holy God is mindful of us. That He cares about you. This great God. And you're just the speck. You're just this little piece of dust. Now now what that should do, the natural response to, to realizing this, to having this perspective, is to worship God. To love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This, this, is, uh, this is what we were created for. This is, this is our purpose. This is the greatest commandment. His existence is evident in all of creation, his word tells us. In fact, it's self-evident. We each have a conscience, for example, a sense of what's right and what's wrong. Well, where did that come from? And yet we are so rebellious that we would even act against our own conscience. Every single one of us has done something that we knew we shouldn't have done, and we continue to do that. In unrighteousness, man's only inclination, by by nature, is to suppress the truth. And so instead of worshiping God in light of this truth of how great and how glorious He is, instead of making Him and His glory the focus of our lives, people make themselves and their own glory the focus of their lives. So the question we're, we're forced to ask ourselves in light of this is this, if you have surveyed and considered and contemplated and, and, and pondered the majesty and the glory of God as demonstrated in the heavens above and in all the earth, why would anybody, why would you want to make your life all about you? But beyond that, if, if you've considered that you're just a, a speck of dust in a cosmic desert, do you see how insignificant really we are? If, if, that's all, if that's all that we are is just a speck of dust in a cosmic desert? Because if all we are is cosmic dust, as the evolutionists would have us believe, then your life doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. Nobody's life really matters. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow, and really we're no more significant than just a tiny wave washing up on a coast somewhere and being dragged back out to sea. We're as significant as that if we're just here by accident. This is the great mystery of God's love, friends. He is unfathomably glorious. He is inexpressibly vast. And he is holy. And thus he hates and he punishes sin justly. And yet, as puny and as insignificant as we are, and as significant as he is, he loves us. And he's mindful of us. 
And he instructs us to glorify him in all that we do in our lives, in our insignificant, fleeting, sinful, wretched lives. In fact, that's what he created us to do. Let's look at verses 5 to 8. He continues saying, Yet, there's a contrast then, Yet, you have made him a a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Now, as we're looking at this, uh, you heard what I said. It says you, you made man uh, a little lower than God. Uh, that's what the NASB says. But the King James and the, um, the New, Amer- uh, New International both say that he made us a little lower than the angels. Uh, the ESV says he made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. So which is it? Uh, I'd say you could say all of the above. Uh, but what we have to understand is the Hebrew word here is Elohim. Elohim, and sometimes that refers to spiritual beings, sometimes it it does refer uh, to angels, but most often it refers to God himself. And it seems that God is the correct translation here because it's obvious that, uh, that David has humanity's purpose from the beginning of creation, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 in mind here. The things that David is referring to here are are all references to Genesis 1. Not only is God mindful, not only does God care, but David tells us that God has crowned man with glory and majesty. I think that's David's way of saying that we're distinct from the rest of creation. We're set above the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea by God. We're made in the image of God to whom all glory and all majesty belong. And thus we're created to reflect the glory and the majesty of God's name in a way that no other part, no other animal in all of creation can or does. And this is actually a truth that evolutionists would try to snuff out completely, right? I mean, they'd say we're just like the beasts. We're just a more advanced species, but no different. But then you look at verse Verses 6 to 8, he says, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. This is all talking about Genesis 1. This is all Genesis 1. But here's the tragedy. This was all lost. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they fell into sin, this was all lost. The image of God remains, although it is now completely corrupted by sin. It's effaced, but not erased. But, it, but if you don't think that man has lost the right and the ability to rule over the animals, I mean, maybe go to a rodeo sometime and, uh, and see the way that animals no longer yield to man's authority. Or go to a zoo and ask yourself, why are these bars here to separate me from the animals? It's for your safety. It's because you don't rule over the animals anymore. But Thomas Aquinas observed something that was very interesting. He was wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about a lot of things. He, he noted that we are beings with a spirit and a body, which actually puts us right between the angels and the beasts of the field. 
Think about it. Angels have a spirit, but they don't have a body. And animals have no body, uh, or have a body, but they don't have spirit. Man, however, has both spirit and body. But you'll notice that David doesn't say that God made man just a little higher than the beasts of the field or the, the fish of the seas. No, he describes us instead as a little lower than God. I mean, both statements would be true, right? You could say it both ways, but he doesn't say it both ways. He says we're a little lower than God, not that we are a little above the beasts of the field. He could have said that, but the reason that he doesn't seems to be that man has a special instruction to set our gaze upwards, to to put our thoughts upward to God rather than downward on the animal kingdom. And the reason that we're to do this is because you become like that upon which you set the gaze of your heart. I mean, we see this all over the place. We see this in fields of work. If you want to uh, become a a machinist, you you study under somebody who knows what they're doing. You you copy their motions. Uh, If you want to be a a great basketball player, you study the great basketball players. If you're a a track runner and you want to learn how to run faster, you compare your run with the run of, uh, of somebody else and see how you might pick up some speed. I mean, this is how it works. If you set your gaze on something, it's to become like that. But while God made humanity to look to him in the beginning and thus to to grow in his likeness, humanity rebelled against God and they listened to an animal, a serpent. And when that happened, man's nature became fixed on looking away from God rather than up to God. And so then, what were we stuck looking at? ourselves, and the animal kingdom. And as we set our thoughts on the animals, what happens? We become more and more like them. I mean, think about, think about Nebuchadnezzar, right? Became just like the beasts of the field. And don't we see this going on all around us? Don't we see people comparing themselves to animals all the time? I mean, if all we are is animals who have just evolved to a more advanced state or whatever than other creatures, it makes sense that we start comparing ourselves and, and, and acting like animals. How many times have you heard, oh, you know, th- this or that behavior is natural. We see animals do it. They also eat their young. It doesn't justify anything. It's, it's totally illogical, but that's the result of sin. Adam and Eve had the kind of authority over the animals that David is describing here. But for the most part, it's gone. And what what remains is badly tarnished and corrupted by the effects of sin. But while creation is not under our control, it is under the control of one man who never sinned, who, who never set his gaze away from God, and that is the Lord Jesus. And the author of Hebrews wants us to see that. Listen to how he, uh, how he shows us how this psalm points to Jesus. He writes this, he says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, and he quotes Psalm 8 here, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. 
for in subjecting all things to him, he continues, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That's a good one. Nothing that is not subject to this one man, Jesus. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So it's true, we don't have control. We don't have authority like Adam and Eve had at the beginning. We are not reigning over creation. But Jesus who was crucified, died, and rose from the grave, is now reigning over all things. He left nothing that is not subject to Him. There's nothing that we're waiting for for His reign to begin. It is happening now. He is reigning from heaven right now. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish, and even the deepest seas, it is all under His authority right now. Jesus told us very specifically All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this is the authority that's the basis for the orders that he gave us. He continued instructing us with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, in other words, in light of his authority, go and make disciples of the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A good friend of mine yesterday posted on on Facebook uh, that that some people think they have to do something uh, great, something really spectacular, something really impressive in order uh, to bring glory to God. But the greatest thing that any of us can do is to humble ourselves before Him, to know Him, to know who He is, and to know that He's glorified in your sanctification. He's glorified in the simple things. He's glorified in the profound things. He's glorified in fallen people being transformed from wretched sinners who hate God into saints who love and worship and serve God and grow in Christ's likeness. God even calls children to this great high calling. This is the the highest calling in the entire universe. And he even gives it to children. But it's not just children. It certainly includes children. But God puts the glory of his name on display in the weakness and and in the frailty of his people. The lowliest even of people have this high, high calling. And so let us have a right perspective of ourselves by having a right perspective of God. And let us rejoice in considering the greatness and the glory and the majesty of his name. What he has given to us. What he has done for us. What he has called us to. He has called us out of darkness. He has replaced the heart of stone with a heart of living flesh. He's put His Spirit within us and He's instructed us, weak, sinful, frail, wretched people that we are, He has instructed us to do all things for the glory of Christ, our Redeemer. 
the glory of his name is displayed in the salvation of his people. Not only in the forgiveness of his people, but in the salvation that they experience from sin. In our sanctification. How amazing is it that God is not only mindful of us, but that he loves us with this kind of love. The only proper response is to join in agreement with what the psalmist says in declaring, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And to find our sense of esteem and, and worth in the place where we find our, our deepest and our greatest joy in the fact that God is mindful of us, that he cares for us, that he loves us, that he sent his son to redeem us all for his glory. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you, Lord, that it gives us a right perspective of ourselves by giving us a right perspective of you. We confess to you that we have fallen so short of what you have instructed. But we thank you for grace. We thank you that, that Christ Jesus, your only Son, upheld the law, upheld what you require in order that all who believe in him would have his righteousness applied to them, imputed to them. Thank you for this amazing gift. Who are we that you would care for us? Who are we that you would rescue us? Who are we that you would suffer for us? And yet that's what you sent your only son to do. We pray, Lord, that this truth would humble us and that we would set our gaze more fully upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray that he would be glorified in the small and the great things that we do. We pray that he would receive much glory, all the credit, all the glory, for even the, the smallest things that we do and the greatest things that we do. That in everything we do, he would be glorified because of your work in us because of what the Spirit is doing within us to make us more like Him. We thank you for this, and we pray that our lives would reflect your glory all the more. In Jesus' name we pray, and by your Spirit. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. 
God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.